Welcome to My African Aesthetic, a podcast that interrogates the African aesthetic in African architecture and design. On this podcast, you'll hear about the work, philosophy, and design process of African architects and designers practicing in Africa and the diaspora. My name is Eunice Nanzala Schumacher. I'm a Ugandan architect and designer living and working in Norway. And my name is Penina Achayo Laker. I am a Ugandan graphic designer, researcher, and educator living and practicing in the USA. Our podcast features conversations with designers working to provide architecture and design solutions for Africa. We would like this to become a platform where our guests share their knowledge and experiences on designing in the diverse, hybrid, and dynamic socio-economic, cultural, and political African context. We are looking forward to embarking on this journey with you. Our guest today is Ibrahim Elhaywan from Veris Architects, Norway. He's originally from Cairo, Egypt, but works and lives in Norway. With over 25 years of experience, Ibrahim has led and has been a part of design and architectural teams on several prestigious and award-winning projects. During his time at Snohetta, a prestigious Norwegian design office, Ibrahim was part of different teams on projects such as the Norwegian Opera, the Norwegian Embassy in Berlin, King Abdulaziz Cultural Center in Saudi Arabia, and Sheikh Zahed Knowledge Center in the United Arab Emirates. In 2008, he co-founded Various Architects, a collaborative, inclusive, and ambitious architectural and design firm in Oslo, Norway. The practice prioritizes environmental solutions and innovative sustainable design, whilst encouraging cross-disciplinary engagement in architectural and design practice. Ibrahim was lead architect on projects such as Lillestrøm Bicycle Hotel, Geneva Dance Pavilion, and Alto University Campus. We're very honored to have Ibrahim on the podcast and look forward to this conversation. Uh, welcome to my African Aesthetic. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. I'm uh, very pleased and uh, honored to be part of this podcast and look forward to this session. When I finished architecture school in 2011, uh, Various Architects was one of the first places that I worked at. And uh, i just like to thank oh. Ibrahim for taking a chance on me and for the foundation that he helped lay for me and my career in Norway. Thank you for joining us. And uh, it, uh, time flies, actually. It feels like yesterday, but it's been many years ago now. So, so a lot of have changed, a lot has happened. It was, uh, it was very fun to, to, to work with you. And as probably I will come about, talk about it a bit later is that um, our company is thinking a lot about having people from different backgrounds and uh, having you from Uganda was very, very interesting and useful uh, part of the team. So we usually like to start the podcast by asking our guests to to tell us about themselves, you know, their upbringing, where they were born and and the things or experiences that influenced or helped them uh, end up in, in the career in which in which they are. So would you please share that with us? Uh, I'm originally from Egypt. Um, my father was a city planner and he had a, a, a position with, um, in collaboration with the United Nations to a project in Zambia. So he lived there for six years and that's where I was born. So it's a bit of a diversity between two different countries uh, from North and South of uh, Africa. Um, and I lived there until I was four years old and then moved back to Egypt. Um, studied all my uh, studies in Egypt, uh, including um, architecture in Cairo University. And uh, after that, I my first job was actually working with uh, an Egyptian company that had a consortium with a Norwegian company on the Library of Alexandra. Uh, and we did this project for a year and after that they offered me to, to move to Norway and I moved something like 27 years ago 
almost. So actually, quite, quite, it's quite funny because I thought that I'm going to live in Norway for a year and two or two, but now it's been really, really long time. So obviously, I enjoyed it here very much. Ibrahim, I'm curious, are there any, um, if you could paint a picture for us um, as to what it's like growing up in Egypt? Uh, did you have siblings? Did you play outside without shoes on? <laughs> did you <laughs> did you have a big community, a neighborhood? Was it a city upbringing, a more village-like upbringing? What what did that look like for you? Well, I come. Uh, I I grew up in Cairo, and Cairo is a city that today is uh, almost twenty million people living there, so it's quite dense uh, city. Um, and but actually, thinking about Egyptian population when I was um, twelve years old. Uh, Egypt was 45 millions. Today, Egypt is over 100 millions. So that's uh, grown really a lot in a very short time. Um, uh, so it wasn't as dense, but it was still a very, very dense uh, city. Um, uh, I was uh, lucky that my school was not that far from, uh, from home. So I used to, in the beginning, I used to take the bus when I was very young to, to, to school. But uh, afterwards, I, uh, um, I started walking and it's about 15 minutes uh, walk. And uh, it's, we lived in a neighborhood that's not very dense. So it wasn't felt like a, a very crowded neighborhood. We in Egypt, we it's, Egypt was not officially a um, British colony, but we had British um, uh, kind of influence in in Egypt. It was technically not a colony, a colony but practically it was kind of a colony. Uh, and the, uh, the English built a lot of um, sports club in Egypt. Uh, for their communities, which became both sports and um, and social clubs, so we grew up in this context where we had where where we were uh, some people had the privilege to be part of a, a club, and uh, my family had, had this membership, where, uh, which meant that I had the possibility to go to the club and do and meet friends and spend the whole day there. Uh, doing sports and social and any kind of sports like swimming, football, tennis, squash, any any sports you can think of, they, this club had it plus the social activities. So that was quite interesting. So in my upbringing, I think I spent more time in this club and at school than at home uh, practically. And all my friends were both at the same school and the same club as well. Yeah, so it's 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 uh, it was it was quite fun and quite uh, uh, yeah social time to to and in Egypt of course we have a lot of families and a lot of friends. Uh, so I actually grew up living at my grandmother's house because my um, my mom didn't want to leave my grandmother alone. So I was I lived there until uh, fifteen years old, and together with. Two of my aunts and two uncles, and so our house was quite full of people all the time. We had visitors all the time, and the door almost never closed. So it's it's much more social uh, upbringing compared to how it is here in Norway, where uh, you know some neighbors don't even say hello. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I'm not saying that's a general thing in Norway, but it's, it was a really huge contrast coming to Norway in that, in that sense. Wow, am I right to say that you were influenced by your dad or? Or did you? How did you? How did you uh, finally find your way into architecture? So he also studied the at Cairo University, um, thirty years ahead of me. Uh, interestingly, he, we had the same professors in some of the subjects, wow. including the history of architecture. So I had a very old professor in history of architecture, uh, and had very similar curriculum, which felt to me that education hasn't evolved that much uh, during uh, those 20, 30 years. It has evolved uh. a lot more since I left architecture school than from when my dad finished school to where I finished school. And uh, he had several jobs. He, he uh, lived in Saudi Arabia for a while working on the city planning there. And he lived also in Zambia for six years. Other than that, he worked in Egypt. I wasn't really influenced by my dad because I've never seen him work because his work was 
very much uh, in a larger scale and uh, not at home in a way. Um, when I was young, I really liked drawings to, to draw and I liked math. And, uh, and that was like from six, seven years old. And, and whenever everybody saw me very interested in drawings and in math, for some reason they said, oh, you're going to be an architect. So since then I wanted to become an architect actually. So, and the, the math is because, uh, uh, in Egypt, architecture school is part of uh, engineering school. So first we go to engineering school and then we specialize to a civil engineer, mechanical engineer, uh, architect, architectural engineer, we call it, and uh, or yeah, a medical engineer, chemical engineer. It's nice. Yeah, it is quite nice actually because we get we have a very good understanding to all other engineering departments and very much with the civil engineering, uh, which is very important in, in our work. So I think that's uh, that's quite useful. Uh, and and since I, I like maths and so as a kid, every, every, everybody said, you've got to be an engineer. And when they saw me like drawings, then they said, you're definitely an architect in a way. So, and since then, I really wanted to be an architect. You know, that's amazing, Ibrahim, because I was told the exact same thing by my teacher in primary school. I, because I was good at math and I loved art, he said, you're going to become an architect. I didn't even know what that was at 11, 10, 11 years old. But in my head, I, I remember thinking, okay, so it looks like I'm going to become an architect um, in life. So I think it's interesting that that same um, combination of subjects for you as well in your experience seems to equate to, to wanting to be an architect. Yeah. So as we uh, now talk about your transition to becoming an architect, could you talk a little bit about those early years of practicing and just finding your way through the field? Yeah, it was quite interesting because when I started architecture school, uh, it suddenly hit me, do I really want to become an architect or have I just been influenced by a lot of people telling me to become an architect since I was six? And it's the first time I thought about it actually after I joined. And I always liked uh, computers. And my dad as, was actually, um, he, was, uh, he took a, a diploma in uh, programming. So I always liked uh, to to work with um, uh, to work with uh, com computer, and I decided maybe I would like to be uh, study computer science instead. But uh, at the end, when I started architecture school, I enjoyed it so much that I decided that's that's really my uh, field that I wanted to to uh, to work with. Um, and uh, our in architecture school, it's. Uh, our studies in Egypt is very tense. Um, we uh, have to do everything at school because they were, didn't want anybody to influence our work. Uh, we weren't allowed to use computers because also, again, they didn't want someone to, to, to help us to get outside help. So we had to do everything at school. Uh, and that was very interesting because we spent a lot of time at school, uh, discussing with, with each other. So we were discussing as colleagues uh, and discussing with the teachers. And we had to deliver a project every three months, but we had to deliver a sketch for the project every week. And then just three weeks before delivery, we would go at school and work uh, with pen and the old T uh, architecture architects used to, to deliver this project. And remember, this was the most fun time for us uh, at the time. That, that's really interesting, uh, Ibrahim, and I'm, I'm picturing you and your cohort are, um, you know, just, just really focused on this area of study and, you know, you know, avoiding as much outside influence as possible and working hard producing projects. And I'm, and I'm wondering how much of the content that you were um, learning uh, focused on your understanding of, 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 of Egypt, you know, understanding your own city, your own, place and uh, and locale how much how much of it was that and how much of it was sort of learning sort of from a more eurocentric uh, lens well i think architecture uh, is very uh, present and prominent in egypt because we have uh, architecture from ancient egyptian history early christian architecture islamic architecture and then trying to transition to the modern era <laughs> So it's uh, it's very big big part of all Egyptians, not just architects. But then when you start studying architecture, I think I guess 
a similar country would be um, would be Italy, for example. That they the architectures there is, uh, and I think there's a lot architects. I think Italy is probably have one of the countries that have more architects per capita as uh, in in whole Europe uh, in a way. Um, so it was very interesting for us that. A lot of our projects that we did at school was about going on site and going uh, and do uh, studies in the streets. And in, in Cairo, we're privileged to have uh, parts of Cairo that's been 500 years old, yet people are still living the same way that they lived these 500 years when, when these buildings were built. Uh, and I'm not talking about, about just one building or, or one street. I'm talking about the whole district when you go there. You would find the streets are too narrow to have any cars. Uh, all the ground floors are filled with workshops and have this local handcraft industries. Uh, and then you walk in the street and then you, you study architecture, but you also study a living city. It's not a museum that you go to, to but it's a real living city. And that's very, very exciting and, and very special about Cairo, uh, in a sense. Of course, we have different kinds of, uh, kinds of, uh, and types of uh, architecture. Uh, for me, what was fascinating is the Islamic architecture. It has always been very uh, environmental uh, and, uh, and um, uh, you know, uh, so many things that has been quite special. You don't have symmetry, for example, in most Islamic uh, architecture. We, uh, it wasn't allowed to use uh, ornaments that's based on uh, Animals and and uh, and uh, people, for example, and doing statues or building statues. So so calligraphy was a very big part of it. Geometry was a very big part of it. But most most important for me, since my dad was a city planner, is the urban design of Islamic architecture. And and it's really really fascinating how when you walk into the city, how these narrow streets are uh, completely designed. Uh, to to fit the environment and the context, so it's um, uh, it's really work with the shadows uh, uh, and the natural ventilation in in the buildings uh, in general. It's uh, yeah, it was quite special for me uh, above anything. Wow, that that definitely sounds really special, and and it sounds like um, whereas in the early in your early years. Your dad being a city planner, perhaps it wasn't the most visible of professions, maybe did not inspire you. It's interesting to hear how eventually in your young uh, uh, architecture career, you started to really see um, how, how, how important it was to understand, you know, the context within which what you build fits and belongs. So you're thinking about not just um, the actual building or um, the artifact, but you're thinking about like the streets and how people navigate themselves through and how it fits within the actual culture um that that it's it's meant to be that that's a really great i think like combination when when i think about like architects learning alongside uh, having an understanding of either urban planning or city planning and um that just struck me as a really great intersection It was, and indeed, my dad started influencing, had much more influence with me when I started university. Um, and yet, he also uh, always tried to be distant and not to influence me too much. So, in a way, he tried to guide me, but not to have too much influence uh, in a way. So, I, I really appreciated that uh, from him. So, it was, it was really quite, uh, I was quite lucky to have this uh, connection with him in, uh, in a way. That's interesting because we've we've had this conversation with previous guests and the tendency is for their parents to almost have already predetermined what they should be, doctor, lawyer, pharmacist, <laughs> you know, like the, the <laughs> professions. And then, and then them having maybe to move to another country or move away from their parents and just be rebels because they want to pursue a career in the design field. So this is this is a very a very interesting and also much needed perspective on the podcast yeah. because I think the majority have had to to fight <laughs> fight for their right to to do architecture or, or design. Yeah, no, for me, it wasn't the case because my dad uh, had a younger brother who he pushed to become a, an engineer. 
uh, and he started and then he decided to want to, to really want to go to the military. So he regretted uh, forcing his younger brother to do something he didn't like. So with me, he just gave me the whole uh, freedom to choose whatever I wanted, but he really wished that I would become an architect. But when I started discussing computer science, he was really didn't want it, want me to go to that field, but he didn't like he avoided any discussions with me until I, I chose architecture. And, um, and for me, coming to Norway was always for us because we always wanted to, to, uh, you always wanted to get a different experience uh, and learn something else from, and especially from a Western country and uh, Europe. So it's always been a dream for me to go and maybe uh, have uh, postgraduate studies or to study more to get more uh, experience. But, um, uh, but then I got this offer for a job and it was just for me just to go for a year or two and, and, and come back and, and uh, live back at home. Because in Egypt, we're not very keen on immigrating. We're very kind of, uh, it's been a culture that's uh, has been uh, around agriculture for several thousand years. So we are we were settlers uh, in a way. So it's not in our blood to, to immigrate. And that's what, uh, yeah, it was a bit difficult for me actually to, to stay longer because when I moved to Norway after three years, I felt if I stay longer, then maybe I'll never get, go back. And that was a really scary feeling for me. But then, um, I, I, as I mentioned, I was working with Snohetta, the architecture company that won the Library of Alexandria, and we did win the Oslo Opera project. And I decided, okay, I'll, it was very exciting to win such a project. I, will, I have to finish it. And it took eight years to finish that project, and that's what made me settle here in Norway. So, so it was quite interesting. So, how was it? How was that transition, personally, but also professionally, from uh, Cairo to Oslo? Working with a, with a Norwegian company, what, what was uh, very interesting for me is uh, to find out if I would. Um, Settle quite fast, or would take long time to 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 have a common understanding. Um, and uh, it, I was very happy that uh, it didn't take any time at all. As I mentioned, I worked with Snoeta already in Egypt for a year before they offered me a job, and I moved to to, to Norway. So I knew quite a lot of um, Snoeta at the time was a very young office uh, less than five years old and won a huge competition. So it was very interesting that the difference in age wasn't that uh, big. And uh, I was very happy that uh, it architecture felt like a common language, like, you know, we understood each other very well and we, we went into the, the projects and could read uh, the drawings and could produced drawings in the very planned sections and elevations that had the same language, we had the same understanding, and we, we had uh, a similar design process uh, in a way. Um, I found out that learning architecture, and what was interesting about Snata, it had also a lot of people from different backgrounds. So it was very important for me to compare our studies to people from backgrounds from the States, from Europe, from Norway, not just from, uh, from one country. Uh, and I felt that we had differences in, 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 uh, in our studies uh, than generally European studies. Um, we were much stronger in uh, problem solving for plans. Uh, we were much focused on being very efficient because we had a tougher economy. So everything in Egypt had to be very efficient and very economical while they had much more freedom to, uh, in their uh, design process and very much, uh, I would say, creative as well in the design process. So it was a very interesting learning experience for me to, to collaborate. Uh, um, and it was very interesting to find that it was important for, uh, for them to have people from different backgrounds to have the same, as much input as possible. And the design becomes a part of this uh, various input as opposed to what we studied in Egypt and what most Egyptian officers were practicing, which is a, a strict hierarchy a pyramid structure where uh, the, the main partner or partners of the, of the office uh, have the most experience and they rely on their experience to come with the decisions. And then uh, the, the development happens through uh, the younger 
um, engineers with the most experience as well, and then they give instructions to the younger engineers and architects and so forth uh, while working at Snyata, uh, which is uh, a completely different uh, design process based on trying to get as much imp- uh, input as possible and then uh, from this input uh, try to come with the conclusions and the design, the final design. So the, the whole... Uh, Everybody was encouraged to come with as many ideas as possible, uh, as opposed to Egyptian, uh, and not only Egyptian, I think even in Norway and all over the world, most architecture offices was the ideas come from the top and then uh, develops further slowly uh, with the pyramid structure in a way. Uh, and that was very interesting for me to feel that uh, um, that an architect from Cairo University can come up with the same ideas as an architect from LA uh, and, and, and feel that that's, there is no gap, uh, no huge gap in the study. And architecture is one language that people from different cultures can uh, develop and work with. And that philosophy has always influenced, uh, uh, influenced my work uh, throughout the years. So coming to Norway was uh, was uh, interesting um, transition. As I said, I, I'm, I came in uh, expecting to live for one year or three years, not too long. So uh, I was enjoying every moment of it. I was trying to travel as much around in Norway and in Europe uh, as I can. I was working as much as I can. I was making as many friends as I can and was really enjoying it, not thinking... Uh, of any consequences uh, of long-term uh, plans uh, in a way. And I found a lot of differences then and I learned so many things as well in Norway. And one of the most interesting was, uh, is, you know, in Egypt being uh, a developing country, uh, economy is very important. And Egyptians, mm-hmm. we always had a, a, a big ambitions. And my ambitions at... Uh, at school and architecture school was to become as uh, successful as possible, as rich as possible, as famous as possible, in as short time as possible. This is kind of the dream, was which maybe is more of an American dream. While I came to Norway to find everybody is completely laid back. <laughs> wow. Everybody wants to leave work at four thirty, and nobody thinks about making as much money as possible. You know, it was like a cultural shock for me. And, and, uh, it was very interesting culture shock and, uh, people like a lot of people, people mm-hmm. are happy to pay a lot of taxes and, uh, people, when they talk about money, they say, no, it's just money and they mean it, uh, in a way. And, and, um, and mm-hmm. all was much more so 20 years ago than now. You wouldn't see any fancy car in the streets because if you had a fancy car, then people would think you're trying to show off and that's very negative. Uh, so people weren't materialistic, wanting more and more stuff as a, t- a completely different culture uh, in, in, uh, in, in many ways than my upbringing. So it was very quite interesting for me, but it was, uh, again, a culture shock, which I enjoyed very much. I enjoyed this transition and I enjoyed uh, mm. relaxing a little bit and not thinking about making as many as much money, but enjoying the design process and enjoying uh, work uh, in general so that was quite fascinating wow that's that's it's it's incredible to hear you paint um a picture of what your experiences were the points of tension like culture shock but also the things that were surprising and exciting around even just learning how to uh work in a collaborative environment to be in a place where you know you you they're just as much interested in your ideas and in your contributions as they are in you learning, which as we, we've talked in the podcast with different guests, that's not so much our African education. <laughs> we are we are we are taught to retain and you know what the teacher says is right that, that when you come into the workplace outside of the continent, you're you're faced with having to to be a contributor of ideas and because we're usually never asked to be that, it's always such a big a big shock, but on when you come out on the other side and you, you see the beauty in collaboration, the beauty in um, being able to um, to to wrestle with ideas and brainstorm and and pick from different perspectives. Once you get comfortable with that way of thinking, you can see the benefits of it. But I can imagine it's it's a big shift in mindset, especially coming from a completely different culture. 
Um, so yeah, so thanks for sharing those. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm curious if there are any any other um, tips or, um, or things that you would want to to, to share with uh, someone who finds themselves in a similar situation where they are having to to transition to a completely different culture, um, work environment, especially coming from the African context, maybe into like a completely maybe foreign, maybe European context. What are some other um, sort of attributes or tips that you would want them to consider and think about as they make that change? Well, yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the the the, the most interesting thing is that um, our architects are are generally um, uh, kind of artists, uh, and every artist want to create their art piece and then sign it uh, at the bottom. So we want. We want the, the, the design product uh, have an ownership of the design product. And that's a very challenging part when you talk about collaborative uh, design process. Because the whole idea of collaborative design process is to get as many ideas as possible. But the most challenging part, which took me a while to, to learn, is that usually when you're coming with an idea, you're defending your idea so much and you want it to go through uh, much further. Uh, because you feel ownership of this idea, and that is um, is very challenging when you work with a group, uh, because it's important to uh, to absorb other people's ideas, and it takes as much talent to recognize an idea that, especially that it's not yours, as to come with a new idea. Uh, and I found out uh, Norwegians are very good at that part, uh, absorbing ideas and not necessarily wanting any credit for their ideas, but want the best idea to, to, to go through, whether it's theirs or not. And that has influenced me a lot. And I very much uh, try to remind myself all the time that a, a good idea should be recognized uh, instead of uh, trying to push for my own ideas. So I think that that's the heart of of, of of collaboration is to push for other ideas and develop them. And I find a lot of, a lot of time in, in design discussion that a lot of time has happened where someone comes with an idea and then try to present it, whether verbally or by sketches, and someone misunderstands this idea and 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 uh, translate it in a different way, and the 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 result of the translation is much more interesting. And it's very difficult to say who came up with the idea, the one who came up with the main idea or the one who mistranslated because in his subconscious he had another idea. And what's very important, it doesn't matter. It's not about who came with the idea, it's about what's the final result. So so it's uh, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. And I think the, the real credit in such a process for me goes for not for any of the of the team members that came with the idea, but the team leader who allowed such a process to happen, because that that requires a very confident team leader that uh, trusting yes. his team to and pushing mm -hmm. them to come with interesting ideas. In two thousand and eight, you co-founded Various Architects, and um, we would love for you to talk about Various Architects, how how it was born, but also what you do, and what you're most proud of. Uh, well, I worked with uh, Snohetta for 13 years doing many projects, among them the uh, Oslo Opera House uh, in, uh, in Norway. I've done many projects in the Middle East and abroad and many projects in Norway. We won uh, a lot of competitions and our work was, um, was uh, uh, um, a collaboration with a lot of uh, different disciplines, uh, but mostly uh, cultural and public projects. And then uh, after 12 years, uh, I felt that um, working there, I started in a very high level because we had a very flat structure where everybody's equal. So when I started very young, I had a, a, a big responsibility and big, uh, generally big position. But after 12 years, looking back, I've, it felt that I haven't moved. 
I haven't had more challenges because again, we have a flat structure and you don't have any hierarchy, so you don't grow. And, and that also is a little bit of a, of a challenge. And that was one of the reasons why, where it was quite interesting for me to uh, start various architects. The idea to start the company uh, came from a very close friend of mine, uh, James Dodson, uh, who we worked together for, for 12, 13 years uh, at Snohetta. Uh, and uh, he uh, came up with the idea and I immediately jumped on it and felt that it would be very interesting and quite uh, fun challenge to try um, to, to do. It took us quite a while to think of a name and uh, the whole idea is that one of the things that also we both learned at Snyder is that uh, we the company is not about the partners or the owners, it's about every architect in in the company. And that's why it was very important for us not to call the company Ibrahim and Jim or something like that, but to, but to find a suitable name. And that's where we came with the, with the name Various Architects. Our ambitions were to work internationally. We didn't want a Norwegian name, although we, we thought it would help us to start because it's not every day. Um, my friend Jim is from uh, from Texas, so it's not every day that you have a company in Norway that's sourced by Egyptian and a Texan. So, so, but still, we decided to give it a Norwegian name, an, an English name, which reflects a little bit more international. And we thought of it as kind of like you know, uh, uh, sometimes uh, music were, were on CDs at the time when we started the company, and you had the CDs were. Uh, designed by various artists instead of uh, any single artist name so we thought various architects would be uh, would be uh, uh, quite interesting uh, and I, I have to thank Jim for coming up with that name because it was his idea to, uh, to come up with the name and we started the company very young in uh, 2008 uh, we our first project one of the pro- our most projects that I was uh, very proud with uh, is uh, a mobile performance venue, which is basically a, a, a venue or a theater that's movable. And it's uh, the whole theater is inflatable. It's about 4,000 square meters. So it's, a, it's actually a, a, literally a building uh, and it packs to 4% of its volume and it can travel uh, around the world and can be built up in, a, in two weeks one week without the roof and two weeks with the roof. And that was kind of a gift from Snyder. Uh, the client went to Snyder and asked them to, to design that building. And they said they didn't have the capacity, but they recommended us to do that building. And this project got uh, published all over the world in many magazines. And one of the, one of the publishing called it 10, one of 10 ideas that would change the world in a way. So it was, uh, we were quite happy and it won a uh, World Architecture Award in Barcelona. So it was very nice to, to have a, such an interesting start and interesting also a special project. Unfortunately, uh, the financial crisis came. So uh, unemployment in architecture in Norway has been huge and it was a really big drop for us uh, in the market and a big uh, shift. So it was quite a challenging time for us as, as well. But now looking back at retrospect, had I known that there would have been a financial crisis, I wouldn't have started the company with my friend. And uh, I'm really happy that we didn't know and we faced this time before. So it was very nice to, to start right before the financial crisis because if we waited a little bit, we wouldn't have started. And I, I most probably would have been still working at Snata. That's amazing. Are there any lessons that you you're taking with you from the pandemic, or some things that you that you had to to shift to do differently because of the you know the the crisis and all that that you're going to keep even as we move you know to hopefully towards a much more um, brighter <laughs> sort of economy. I think most of the lessons that there's always positives and negatives in any situation. So because of the financial crisis came in 2009, uh, we uh, we had to look for other jobs and other positions. And uh, at that time, uh, OMA, largest uh, office in, in Holland, one of the largest in the world, uh, offered us to collaborate with them in uh, a competition they had just won. 
in, uh, in that day. Uh, and they asked me to be a project architect for that project. So I, if it wasn't for the financial crisis, I would have uh, decided to stay and try to continue building uh, our company. But that was also very, very interesting opportunity that was very difficult to say no to. So uh, I went to Hong Kong and lived there for a year and a half. Uh, working on that project and it was very uh, very very interesting and very challenging uh, experience uh, coming back so i think the most the, the the lesson that i learned most from there is that you know um, uh, sometimes every situation creates different opportunities and one must not look at the negatives but try to look at the positives and uh, see if there is any possibilities similarly for example talking about uh, the pandemic and and having home offices is uh, something that developed the communication and collaboration uh, online very much. Uh, I, I think w this podcast wouldn't have been uh, familiar, uh, or maybe wouldn't have been born without this uh, this situation. So I think that's uh, it's in a very uh, there's always positive. It has been very challenging for us because we are a very collaborative office. It's very important to, to, to sit together and talk together. But also it helped us to collaborate more with others. Uh, much easier to have uh, uh, team meetings where we include a lot of other uh, disciplines together with us. Uh, so I think I think there's always positives and negatives. And, and we, we try to get as much from the positives. What does managing a team with diverse professional and personal backgrounds look like? For me, it's it's uh, it's the easiest thing in in the world because working with with uh, with uh, with creative people, uh, you always just uh, enjoy having all these discussions and all this work, and you just sit back and wait for all these fantastic ideas to to come up uh, and and. And I think I think also it's not just the disciplines, uh, uh, different backgrounds, but different age as well. Working with with young architects is is uh, you know we always had much more dreams and ambitions, and then we become more realistic and more uh, experienced, and we rely rely more and more on experience. So I think working with younger archi uh, architects also has has been uh, has always been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, and and uh, the only the only thing that, as I mentioned, uh, as a as a team leader, that I try to do is to try to uh, have uh, the whole team forget about following their ideas, but but, but trying to build from each other uh, ideas and each other discussion. And I don't know if I would manage to work alone. Like I've n I haven't never tried. Like when in architecture school, we used to work together and. Uh, discuss a lot and since uh, my first uh, job in architecture i've worked in, in as a teamwork uh, and i've never tested myself just to, to, to do design completely by my own i always bounce ideas back uh, and i find it much more rewarding and much easier that the ideas develop than just working alone so it's it's a uh, i think Collaborative work and collaborative architecture is, is very interesting and it's, uh, it's the only process I can work with. Well, that, that, that's amazing. Um, I wanted to, to, um, hear your thoughts on now that you are leading a team that seems to be pretty diverse, you know, from so many different walks of life, uh, a more like international and maybe global, uh, sort of perspective into the way we, we, we practice and design um i'm wondering do you does your connection to your uh to egypt or say like your african roots like find its way into your work um do, or does has by virtue of working with such a global team has your maybe philosophy or perspective um maybe felt more of like a global perspective now or do you find that depending on the project, that there are still opportunities for for you to tap into um, maybe what you would consider to be your like you know Egyptian sensibilities or roots or I don't know if that question makes sense. Yeah, no, you know it does it does make sense to me, and I think uh, what has changed with me, as I mentioned now, is the design process uh, in general. What has always been very interesting uh, for me is. Uh, 
the urban context and the uh, urban design uh, in general, uh, and uh, that has, and I think it's it's uh, it's uh, I think it's been very inspired by African uh, uh, my African uh, upbringing, Islamic architecture as well uh, part of it. Um, mention a small thing about the Oslo Opera House project. It's a project when we when we were designing it. Uh, as I mentioned, Norway is not a showing of country, and we felt that spending so much money uh, on a project that's for a few people uh, is a bit uh, against uh, the ideology and maybe not in the right direction. So the whole ideas that emerge from the project is to try to give uh, uh, back to as many people as possible. And the whole project was uh, designed as a public space. That's a roof that's sloping down in the water uh, in Oslofjord and connect, connecting people to the water, connecting culture to nature and, and creating a, a, an open plaza for everybody to come. And it's one of the biggest tourist attractions now in Oslo that people go in and use this public areas and public space, which is in the shape of the, of the roof. And that has influenced my, my work uh, a lot, I think. It was been a part of my up, uh, upbringing in a way is always to relate, probably because we have so many people uh, in Egypt, but always to try to give back uh, to the people. And uh, um, I was part of the competition, as I mentioned, but de developing the project further. I was part of the group for the, for the front of house group, but then uh, the part of this open space public plaza fascinated me very much and I became the architect responsible for the design of this roof and I collaborated together with three artists to develop this uh, public space uh, because it was a kind of an art piece within the architecture so it was quite interesting and in all our projects at, uh, at uh, various architects we try the first thing, of course, you try to, to solve the program and the functions that's required, but we try to do more than what is required and more than the function. And we try to give back to the people more than, than what is required, even public projects. But it's, of course, it's much easier in, in cultural projects. And one example of that, we designed a, a, a bicycle hotel, which is basically a, 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 a parking space for, for people, encourage them to use bicycle um, bicycles as means of transportation. And it was by the railway authorities because they wanted to build such a project to, closer to the railway so people would take the train and then use the bikes instead of commute by cars. And the client was very interesting. He said, you know, I have few requirements, uh, place for 500 bicycles, uh, green roof, uh, and something cool. And that was the only requirements that they said. Uh, and we, again, kind of inspired by the our design and the opera project previously, uh, decided to give back to the city the place that this building would take by, again, opening the roof to, 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 to the public, but creating a very dynamic uh, and interesting uh, form. Uh, and this project got a lot of publicity, has been uh, published in many magazines and exhibited in St. Petersburg and, and in Berlin and was going to be exhibited in, uh, in the US if the pandemic hasn't started. So, so uh, it, uh, it, uh, it influenced the same philosophy, influenced all our work. And, and that kind of also happened through part of my upbringing. I see you uh, taking taking up space in the architectural field in in a foreign context, and I think that is something that many of us uh, architects in this in this situation from Africa find it difficult to to take up space, you know, and and lead and just say we're going to do it and see where it goes. So what opportunities do you see available for African designers and architects to grow and have a greater impact on both a local and international scale? And then number two is, what is your African aesthetic? African, I think African in general would, would have uh, a very interesting, diverse background and very interesting ideas to, to, to give with and talking about African aesthetics. And I think like something is important uh, is very special about African 
is our connection to nature uh, and our courage in colors in a way, uh, not just being uh, using uh, uh, monotone colors in a way and gray colors, but we really uh, very brave uh, in colors in, in general. Maybe maybe uh, similarly to as Latin Americans. Uh, have the same um, uh, influence uh, in general, and I think uh, uh, any any African would have a huge uh, huge chance to 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 develop in in uh, Europe and in the world. What I think is a bit challenging is that it's much easier to develop from within Europe, and much easier to to go global from if you start in Europe than starting in Africa. And if you look at architecture magazines and architecture uh, publishing, it's it's dominated by Western architecture, even if it's designed by non-Western, but it's still dominated by buildings and projects coming from, from the West. Um, and that's a little bit uh, unfortunate. So I think the biggest challenge for African is not to, is not to be able to do something special, but to be able to travel to the West and start from there. Because again, you have the immigration laws and immigration uh, opportunities that doesn't allow uh, for these chances uh, and I think that our biggest challenge is to start from our own country and and, and uh, spread globally from that sense but if once you are in Europe I think the chances to go there is is, uh, is uh, extremely high uh, considering also that immigrants in general work harder and try to to, to in general, they're they're risk takers uh, in a way, and and and, uh, and are looking for ways to improve their lives and improve their context and, and their surroundings as well. So so uh, I feel that it's not has not been any challenging for for myself or anybody in my situation. I think on the contrary, it's it's kind of a, a smooth ride. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ibrahim, for taking the time to share with us your story um, and also just leave us with so many great uh, points and uh, nuggets to reflect on. And I hope for all our listeners that, you know, there's someone out there who is feeling encouraged by everything you've shared. And um, um, I'll be looking a little bit more deeply into various architects and the work that you're doing. I've seen some highlights of the projects you're doing and I'd encourage everyone to go check you out as well. Um, but yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk with us here at the My African Aesthetic Podcast and we look forward to staying in touch with you and maybe one day, I know Eunice is in Norway, but maybe one day I'll find my way over there and come visit. I, I hope so too and thank you very much for inviting me. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please join us for more conversations and interviews with African educators, creatives, architects, urban planners, and designers as they share their knowledge and experiences about practicing in Africa and the diaspora. Remember to subscribe, leave a review, or share this podcast with other people that might be interested in this content. Thank you for joining us today.